So let's get back with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you as always for the great gift that you have given to us of your son and what he has meant to us as he has given us life, breath, hope, a peace, or that we were undeserving of, Lord. And so as we reflect on the goodness of you, we reflect on the gift of your son. And in the gift of your son, the giving of the Holy Spirit that has enlivened our hearts, has changed our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, has given us wisdom and insight into the truth of your word as he continues to reveal to us that truth, Lord. And so we pray now as we continue to dive into your word, Lord, may your spirit do its work of applying it to our hearts. May he be the one who speaks as he speaks truth to us, as he reveals the truth to us, Lord, today. Lord, may you continue to bless us and keep us as we dive into your truth, as we aim to glorify your name as we live it out day by day. All this in the glorious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip on over to 1 Peter 2. Uh, Ross has kind of introduced this a little bit, but we'll get a little bit more in detail. A little bit about myself. I'm Andrew Yannikin. That's my name. I'm the administrative pastor at Sunrise. I work with Adam, uh, where I've been now for almost a year. I accepted the job exactly one year ago last week, uh, which is kind of interesting how the Lord has worked all of that out. Uh, and so coming to here today, I was given the task of preaching to you guys on work. And so we're going to talk about what it means to be godly men in the workplace. And so as I think about work and I think about working, the first thing that came to mind is I went back to my days in college. What was my thoughts back in college? And there was one book that always came to mind because I thought it was funny. Um, is it supposed to be satirical? Some would say yes. And it's Thomas More's work, Utopia. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Thomas More's work. Uh, he was a very popular writer in the 1600s. Uh, he was the chancellor under uh, Henry VIII. He was beheaded because uh, he didn't submit to King Henry VIII. But during that time period, he wrote a book called Utopia. It's where we get the word utopia. This idea of a perfect society. And in this perfect society, he talked about the fact that everyone would enjoy work. Work would be a part of who they are. They would work six hours a day. And after you worked that six hours a day, you would enjoy your community so much, you would work another four to five hours on your own because you just enjoyed work. It was peaceful, it was pleasant, it was part of what you did. So you didn't pay to build roads. The people built them because it was fun and we enjoyed our community working. Uh, and of course, I always find it funny in college because as we all grow up, the very first thing we're taught is work is horrible. You're gonna hate every moment of your life. Uh, and yet, the very thing that we do almost more than anything else is work. We spend eight to 10 hours a day, depending on your job, unless you're a doctor, at which point you spend a lot more, uh, working. Uh, so you spend a lot of time at work. And one of the things that have often come up, especially in the recent uh, time, which is why I picked this book over here, somewhere under here, Gospel at Work, uh, The Gospel at Work. And what he spends a lot of time doing is dealing with the fact that we spend a lot of time at church or at work, but usually the last thing ever spoken about or applied to in the church is what do you do at work? We talk a lot about family which is good. We talk a lot about how you live your family, how you live as godly men in the family. We spend a lot of time talking about being godly men as men, but very rarely do we then curtail that into how do I apply that in my workplace every day? And as uh, Ross actually just pointed out, he went to two texts and then a third that deal explicitly with how work works itself out. In both Colossians and Ephesians, the text that, also, that deals with marriage, 
is also the idea of how servants and masters work together and how they live as Christians in those relationships. And as well, we'll get to Peter, and Peter deals with it even more. Specifically, I chose 1 Peter because it, A, I enjoy 1 Peter a lot. I preached through this book a couple years ago when I was pastoring. And one of the things that Peter really hits us with the idea is, especially in our context, is work is suffering. So with the idea of suffering in work, but not as necessarily a negative, but as a positive. And so the entire book of 1 Peter is this idea of suffering well for Christ, is understand who our identity is in Christ and suffering well, and that it's not a bad thing. And so why I want to deal with this as well is in our day and age, suffering is seen as an extreme negative. Our goal in life is to remove suffering as far from us as possible. Suffering is a negative. So if I can take a pill that gets rid of these feelings, if I can run just so I can stop thinking about suffering, I'm going to do it. Our culture lives by that mantra that I just want to be happy. So that's why everything just becomes whatever makes you happy. And that's even coming to the workplace. Your workplace has become a place that you can find yourself. Now, I assume that's very similar here in Europe as it is in America. America, that's what you choose your job based on what will make you happy. And so when you build into that life mindset that happiness is found in my work, my identity becomes found in my work, it's what I do. And yet if you spend eight to 10 hours a day there and you're not happy, then you lose your identity. You lose everything about yourself because I need to do something else because I'm not happy. And so my happiness becomes wrapped up in this idea. So today what I want to do is walk us through this text, walk us through 1 Peter a little bit, and show us the fact that our identity is in Christ and so that will play itself out into the workplace. Because if our identity is secure, no matter what happens while we're there, Christ will be the one put on display. So how we act will reflect our identity in Christ. However our work situation goes up, down, left, right, if everything's great at work, it's the same. If everything is horrible at work and it's the worst season of work in your life, you are not swayed by it for your identity isn't found in it. It's found in Christ. And so as we get to 1 Peter, chapter 1 and 2 sets the context as it deals with this foundational idea of being born again to a living hope. He gears everything that he's about to say to the Christian church at this time, and he wants them to remember that they have been born again, that this is not their home. They have been born anew into a new family, into a new citizenship. We as believers are new creations. We do not belong to this world. So within that idea, you are not members of the UK. You are not Northern Irish. We are not American. We are Christians. Our identity isn't wrapped up in those citizenships, citizenship of heaven. And so Peter lays this out very heavily that our citizenship in this room is more important than the one outside this room. And that's what guides us. That's what will strengthen us. That is what gives us hope. And that's what Adam began with that idea of the church and how the church has this commonality in the gospel. And that's what unifies us. And so in this, he call, talks about having a living hope that calls us to being holy, to living out the faith. That Paul, Peter will spend most of his time reiterating time and time again that this is not an intellectual exercise. Our Christian faith is not going to a building and checking off boxes. I heard that sermon. It was good. I can critique every way he did it. I can even do the exegesis in Greek if I want. I'm great as a Christian. Peter would say, you're rubbish and you've done nothing if you do not have the reality of Christ living in you. This is Paul's exact points in 1 Corinthians. If I can speak with the tongues of angels but have not love, I'm a clashing symbol. I'm nothing. 
And so this is what will carry him into each area of the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is an extremely applicable book. While he deals with theology, he immediately connects it to living out the faith. And so he reminds us of grounding ourselves in Christ and who we are. And so 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 is where he sets the foundation of where he will go. And in this, he makes it very clear that we are a chosen race. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so again, as we begin to move towards 18 through 25 that deals specifically with servants, masters, living out the faith in the workplace, we have to remember where he builds, and that's on who we are in Christ. So that's why I'm not jumping directly into the workplace, but grounding us very, we have to know who we are as Christians, where Adam began, who we are as believers, who we are in the gospel. Because if we are not secure in our faith in Christ and what he has done for us, how he has changed us, the rest will just be moralism. I can tell you a bunch of moral things to be a good employee. Most people just want a list of things to be a good employee or to be a good boss. But that doesn't change you. It has no eternal purpose. And it does not affect those around you for eternal ends. The things that do is our foundational identity in Christ. In living the faith for him. So that when anything comes our way, our aim is to glorify him in those moments. And so that's why Paul, or Peter, sorry, Peter grounds us in that reality of our identity. Paul as well in Ephesians, before he gets to his commands in 4, 5, and 6 of those chapters, he begins in 1 and 2 by setting what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us, what the Spirit has done for us. So we know our identity in him so that we can live out the faith. And so this is where we have begun. This is where we are grounded. He has saved us. He has changed us. He has made us who we are. We were once not a people, but now we are his people. He gave us hopeless sinners a lasting hope as saints because of the work of his son. He made us who were wretched into that which is holy and righteous by his blood, according to his good wills and purposes. And so therefore, as we turn to 18 through 25, that is the reality of which we are based on and how we will walk. So beginning in 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For it is this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And so as we come to this text, we focus now on how we are to live in the workplace. And the first thing that we see is that through our submission to those who the Lord has placed over us in our workplaces, our faith is revealed. Is revealed as we show respect and honor to those before us. In the previous chapter, he makes this very clear as he literally says to give honor to everyone, to show honor to all those above us. And so he worked his way down and to this point that he begins to look at how we live it out day by day. And so servants and master relationship were very common in their day, as of course, and today we see that mostly in our employment situations. That was a very similar situation. I won't get into all the racial tensions and stuff that we have. It's a little different here. I've had conversations about how people don't understand all America's problems. This is a giant American problem text. Americans have a lot of problem with this text. It spends a lot of time. Also because Americans have very wrongly used this text um, for political gain as to we do whatever we want, listen to us, stop making problems. Uh, I don't know how the context of that works itself out as well in this uh, era. Um, but enough to say that we understand what it means to work for someone, to submit to them, and they, at the end of the day, have the right to fire us or not. They have the ability that, in a way, they control what happens to you tomorrow. And so we understand to a degree within that framework what this is dealing with. The Greek in this is actually talking about household managing slaves. So the idea of slaves and servants that actually had a great deal of authority. They handled money in the homes. They were teachers in the homes, so they trained children. They were very well-respected in the home. They were treated very well. And so in that end, we see it very similar to what we have today. So often this was people paying off debts and other things. And of course, as we go into our modern economy, no example is perfect. We aren't in the first century, but we can apply it very easily to the 21st century. And so this is where we begin to see this reality of how do we then live when this is our model. We are called to respect those over us, regardless of whether they are respectable. Because he says to the unjust master as well. Because it's very easy, as Peter will lay out, it's easy to like your boss and listen to them when they're great people. I've had some great bosses. I can easily work for guys that are nice, that are compassionate, especially Christians. Christians are usually great too. But we have the non-Christian boss that's over you every five seconds, wants to double check every piece of work that you do, just wants to micromanage you into the ground. You usually get a little angsty. You feel like you're not trusted. You feel like they don't like you. And so the flesh is very quickly on top of you. And then there's an attitude that's, well, he's not worthy of respect. Therefore, I don't need to respect him. What Peter has laid out here, and as Paul pointed out, as Paul points out in chapters 5 of Ephesians, as well as Colossians, is that reality of that doesn't matter. Who they are is not the bellwether of how you act. Just as Ross points out in the family, Paul point, or Peter here points out in the family later that you are called to live well with your wives. It's not on them, on how you act. It's on you to represent Christ in that situation. So it is in your workplace. So you are a representative of Christ. So you live respectively to them regardless of whether or not they are just, whether or not they are worthy of respect. You are called to show them respect as you would show to Christ. 
And so when it comes to the idea of vocation, we spend a lot of time digging into this. And again, there are several points of scripture. The biggest theologian to work through this is probably John Calvin. John Calvin wrote extensively on the idea of theology of vocation, vocation as life, as the Reformation and the Renaissance began to change the world around it. This became a big deal. What do I do with my life? And how do I live that out? And so he spends a lot of time working through the ideas of vocation. He'll come to this text as well as Ephesians and Colossians and really work through the fact that it's about being an example of Christ where you are every moment of the day, especially where you spend your time, because that is where you are called. So that's an important part here that he's even walking through is the fact that servants being subject to masters, not only the good and the gentle, but also the unjust, is rooted on the idea that God is the one who has placed us where we've been placed. Again, he began the book of 1 Peter with this idea we're exiles and aliens. We are not where we should be, but where we are is where God has placed us. So that includes where we are in life. So where you are, where you are working, where you are existing is where God has placed you. So we wouldn't say that there's some special call that you received separately, that you were just sitting in your bed one day. Maybe you did, but you were just like, God was like, be a doctor. And David's like, bam, I'm a doctor tomorrow. I heard a voice from heaven. There was lights and shiny things. And then you're going. I'm not mocking the spiritual gifts. I'm just saying that's not, most people did not go into their jobs because people think pastors that we receive some divine calling like Saul walking down the road and we got hit with a blinding light. We're like, I'm going to be a pastor. No, we... We, we lived in the church, we read scripture, we really enjoyed the preaching of the word, and we had elders come around and go, I think you got a gift for preaching, you should look into this. And then we, 90% of us did, and other people validated that call. Most of you probably enjoyed the things that you did, and you went into it. Some, maybe you didn't enjoy the things you did, and you still went into it. And the Lord uses you where you are. And so the point isn't the finding yourself, but it's the fact that wherever you are is the place God has called you to in this moment, in this season. If you want to use the Esther point, for such a time as this, uh, that God has placed you where you are for this season, for this purpose, to make his name great. So it's not about you, it's about making much of him. And so we live that out. So we honor everyone. We honor those who are just and unjust, especially as we work. So again, as he said earlier in, in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We make much of him wherever we are, for the glory of him alone. And as the text continues, it does deal, therefore, with more than likely, as believers, you will experience hardship in employment. You will experience hardship. It won't be great all the time, especially if you have unjust bosses. So in this first century, Christianity wasn't the religion that it is today. Uh, Northern Ireland, much like America, has a history of Christianity. Saw the St. Patrick exhibit. Christianity's been the thing in this country for 1,600 years. Like, Northern Ireland is Christian. I'm going to use the parentheses. But, like, that is the bedrock. Far longer than America's had any form of Christianity. And America's form of Christianity is weird as it is. But it's like, when you come here, the general point is, you are Christian. You just pick which side you're on. There isn't really any other debate. You are. If you're from Northern Ireland, you're a Christian, just pick one. Are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Pick one. That's it. And so that all the more as we are beginning to see those things begin to rub away, where Christianity is becoming much less the norm. In America this past week, they just released a new study. They do studies on religion every year. Non-religious has actually taken over as the largest religious group. The largest religious group in America now is non-affiliated religious. 
So they don't believe in anything. Not that they aren't spiritual, not that they don't, but they don't ascribe to any one group. Evangel evangelical Christianity is now second at 22%, while non-religious 23%. So it has been ticking up every year, every generation. And so we begin to see that play itself out in the workplace. I had a couple conversations that we talked about in the workplace here. There's a general tone of you just don't talk about anything. You don't talk about anything is the general impression. You don't talk about faith. You don't talk about anything that could be sensitive, that people may disagree on. It's just not done. You just show up, you do your work, you go home. Which, if you're working eight hours, that just sounds really boring um, and really hard. That's really my, like, how do you build a relationship? How do you get to know people? And so what it becomes, especially when we look at this, is how do we live the faith out, live the faith well, when those are the parameters that we live in? And so what he deals with is living it in a way that resembles Christ, that exemplifies him, because at the end of the day, everything we do, especially if people know that we're believers, especially if we present ourselves as different than other believers, that's not just I belong to a Catholic group or I belong to a Protestant group, but that there's something different. Something about you should shine that you are different than people that are believers in name, not, in who they, not that they've been transformed by Christ. And so if you present that there is a difference between you and Catholicism and Protestant mainline ideas, if you're presenting there's something different, they should see that there's something different, not that you look like everyone else. And this is where Peter lays this out for us, that our life should reflect this. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you are sin, you are being, you endure. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so in all our things that we do and everything we do at work, we're mindful of God. We're mindful of the words that we say, how it reflects God. We're mindful of the way we interact. Ross made a really great illustration of talking with his wife that when you sin against your wife, you apologize to your wife. You repent. You make that right. In the workplace, that is usually the last thing we want to do. If we've done something to hurt or bother one of our coworkers, really, we usually go, with, eh, they'll get over it. We know we've sinned against them, and we know we have shown something that was not the attitude of a believer or representative of Christ, but usually we fall back into the same worldly mindset of, they're not really going to care. I mean, they've done it. We'll be fine. They'll just get over it. What Peter says here is that's, that's not the attitude of a believer. A believer exemplifies Christ. And so we live out the faith. So you go to them. What is different than someone actually coming to you and going, man, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have spoken that way to you. I shouldn't have come down on you that way. I shouldn't have been so condescending. I... It shows something very different because that's just not the way people act. People just move on. He goes, but we're not. We're, we're showing that there's something different, that there's something more, because Christ has forgiven us. We, ex we seek forgiveness from others, and we extend forgiveness all the more. So then if your coworker does something against you, you can equally be like, hey, don't worry about it. Totally cool. Go and extend forgiveness. Be open to being the light of the gospel to them. Again, as these open doors for the example of who Christ is, opening doors to speak about it, as we show the grace of Christ, as we exist in these environments that may be hostile to the true gospel being lived out. And so I experienced this a lot more when I was in seminary. Usually people go, pastors, you guys don't ever actually have real jobs. 
We hear that one always often. What do you do? You sit in your office all day and read the Bible. Well, yes, but we have other lives too. Uh, this past year, I spent my time refereeing and doing other ridiculous things that I often got yelled at because one thing you learn refereeing any sport is fans hate you, players hate you, coaches hate you, and your other referees probably hate you too. No one really likes what anyone does. It's not fun being a referee. I gained a great respect for all of them this past year. But you conduct yourself in a way that is honorable, that is loving and gracious to them, while all you're doing is being yelled at and called the worst human being ever alive because they didn't get a call go their way when they were clearly wrong. But, uh, but that's just part, but you continue to exemplify the gospel. In seminary, I worked at seminary. That's where we go to study the Bible, where we pr prepare for ministry to be a pastor. I worked at the school 30 hours a week in an office that handled every single student issue you could handle, financial aid, military aid, student workers, getting people church jobs. We were the catch-all for ministry people. You want to do a job or make money? That was our job. Lots of angry people. Um, people always wondering why they can't get a job in the church. I'll give you a list in a moment. Um, <laughs> just because they're just not nice to people. Uh, but on top of that, I worked another 30 hours a week. And the one, A, besides getting, making more money, because school's expensive, uh, my boss at the seminary had this main driving ideal. I was part-time 30 hours a week. One of the things that he always encouraged every seminary student to do, including myself, is you have to work a secular job. For the one reason, the fact of, if all you do is surround yourself with church people, all you're around is Christians, A, you have no outlet for the gospel, especially in seminary, because you spend 30 hours a week working at the seminary, then another 20 hours a week studying or going to class. So you have to work somewhere else for the fact that you need to be around believers, you need to have bosses that may be believers or not believers, to understand real life. What every single person in your church on a Sunday morning experiences the other eight hours a week, or the other 40 to 50 hours a week. And so he pushed me to do that. And I will say I had a phenomenal boss. I did, I, will, I swept streets. So, or car parks apparently, car parks. I swept car parks and I picked up garbage bags. So when I worked with a couple of other guys, uh, we were a small company. Uh, my boss was phenomenal. Um, but during that, we had several different run-ins where I would do things that he wanted done a different way. We had the very first day I got there, he gave the lovely speech that at the end of the day, I love you guys, I love my employees, but every single one of these contracts took me six to 12 months to get. If you cost me one of my contracts, you are fired tomorrow. It's a fun opening illustration. Uh, you're, you're not really going to be drawn to that guy. But what I quickly learned as well, though, is he meant it, but he also meant we can work through things. We can talk. Be open with what's going on. I'm here for you. And I experienced that as I made mistakes and was open with him and taught him, like, oh, I messed up on this. And he's very gracious towards how do you do better? How do you, instead of being fearful of, man, he's going to get angry, he's going to fire me, it's just being open, being able to work through those problems. Asking forgiveness when I clearly messed up on a job or when I knew something didn't go wrong this week, I totally missed stop three. I missed three trash cans. Just calling me like, hey, I missed these two things. So if they call, let me know. I'll even run back out. Usually his answer was, hey, it's fine. They don't care. Um, but just keep me informed. And the whole idea was, while I had a great boss, it also taught me to continue to interact like normal people. So church pastors aren't immune to it. Of course, those who go to foundation, you know, your pastor does work. Uh, as well, so he doesn't just sit in office, though I bet he would love to just spend time reading the Bible and hanging out with you guys that, uh, all day, all the time. So one day, it's always a good goal. Um, 
So I was blessed to finally be full-time and spend a little bit more time working on the church with our members this past couple months ago. But even with it, it's just this continual idea of living out the faith. And that, in that time of seminary, working 60 hours a week at that point, school, seminary, and working, uh, it's very easy to get tired and forget the reality of the gospel. But it taught me to be intentional with showing the gospel. Because some of the guys that would work the crew with me at night weren't believers. So it was a very easy opportunity of like, oh, we missed that. Oh, don't, don't call it in. Don't, don't tell Rich. It's not a big deal. And it's like, well, this is... This is how we do this. This is what believers do. It's how they treat their bosses. And so there was always that fear that he would come down on them. But that is not how we are called to live. So we live out the faith well. And should we suffer, and this is the other part, is for all those things that I messed up on, if he did come down on me and fire me for whatever reason, it is just in the fact that if I am punished for doing things that are wrong, that's on me. So if you're in your workplace and you are purposely either A, being lazy, and just not doing your job, uh, if there's any reason that you're the fault of what has happened, Peter's answer is, that's on you. Don't blame God for your failings. It pretty much becomes, especially in the idea of persecution. In American Christianity, we're big with the word persecution. Everything is persecution. If, I'm, if something happens at my work, it's, I'm being persecuted because, you know, they just don't like my view in Christianity or how I thought it's persecution. When half the time you're like, I know you, it's really not. The way you talk about your boss, the way we hang out after on evenings and you talk about how he does this, this, and this, like clearly there's, there was a lot more behind this than just he just doesn't like. There, there is an element here that you're not loving them well. So Peter makes, if you suffer for sin, don't go blaming God for your sin. But if you are living the faith and you are the model employee, you are doing everything according to the book. You love your boss. You treat them with respect. You treat your coworkers with respect. Everything you do models Christ. And you're punished for it? Awesome. Suffer well, buddy. And that, that, the answer isn't even still blame. It's suffer well. Just keep suffering. It's going to be great. Christ suffered. That's what you get. Just keep doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And if you suffer, all the more. Praise God. Keep doing it. Keep being the model of Christianity. Because at the end of our day, our jobs aren't what will define us. Should you lose that job that you've loved forever and you've worked your entire life to get because you lived out the faith well? Congratulations. There's another one tomorrow. There's another job next week. There's another job three years from now. Your identity isn't wrapped up in what you're doing. Your identity shouldn't be wrapped up with what you're doing. Your identity should be wrapped up with who you're known by, and that is God. That Christ is your foundation, and if he is your identity, the rest doesn't matter. The rest is an opportunity to proclaim his greatness and provide for your family through his working. Because at the end of the day, he is the one ultimately responsible for your provision. You work because you've been called to work. Uh, we can spend some time in other parts of the scripture where you're called to work, do things, pay your bills, but he is the one who will provide those means. So if you're living out the faith well, trust him to provide that end. For our jobs are not our fulfillment. He is. And that is why he grounds the end of this text so deeply in Christ. Verses 21 through 25, the vast majority of this entire section as Ross has already alluded to, is all based on our identity being wrapped in the example of Christ. For in verse 21, for this, 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so in this, it's a summary with application from Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Giving that wonderful picture of prophecy in Isaiah about the suffering servant who would come and take on our transgression, take on our sins. That would be like a sheep before his shear is silent for us. And so he grounds us finally in that reality of who we are in Christ, that Christ has done all of this and more for us. And in this, we see an example as well as how we are now called to live, as we are called to live as Christ. So he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So giving us the perfect picture of Christ's humanity, who he was. Now we are, of course, are sinners. We are plagued by deceit. And yet now what he has pointed us to is again is our identity. If our identity is Christ, these are the things that should be identifying points of our lives. So that when we sin, we confess it, we repent, we walk in holiness. Deceit should not be a characteristic of our speech. People shouldn't hear us and automatically go, are they telling the truth? Can I believe the words that they're saying? Are their actions backed up by these words? They should have the example of our lives that our mouths should be speaking truth and our lives should back it up. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So again, when, when wickedness came against him, his immediate reaction wasn't to punch back three times harder. We have a girl in our church that I went to college with, which is really funny. She is one that if you pranked her in any way, shape, or form, there's a good chance your tires are getting slashed. Like that's, that's the idea, not that she's actually gonna do, but she's gonna take your little prank like putting uh, shaving cream on like a doorknob to make fun of her or whatever. And next, your car is being completely drenched in something disgusting. She's ripping your tires. Like, she's a lovely person. I don't mean anything negative about her. But it's just that idea. There are people that can take the smallest thing as an offense and then blow it into a giant mountain. I just taught church history last week. We talked about one of the church fathers, Jerome, who's has a bad rap, but it's really cool. And that's what he was known for. He was known for, if you critique anything he wrote, he is going to attack you, your mother, your children, anyone you've ever talked to, and everything in between as how you guys aren't really Christians because you critiqued me because there is no fault in what I say. So that idea of taking small slights and blowing them up is very antithetical to exactly what he's talking about. So if our first reaction in our hearts, if something comes against us, someone sins against us, is like, man, I'm going to get them back. We need to really check ourselves, especially when it comes to how we live that out at work. For Christ lived out the life, was mocked ruthlessly, was reviled often. We hear all the charges laid against him throughout the Gospels. And for each, he doesn't even bother to deal with them. He's like, nope, but okay. He doesn't revile in return. He doesn't seek his own ends. When he suffered, he did not threaten. 
because he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. At the end of the day, our lives aren't judged by the world around us. They're judged by God alone. And so our lives have to remember that how we live our lives will not be judged in this world, but will be judged in the one to come. And so how you live at work will not be defined, your life and who you are is not defined by how your bosses think about you or whether or not they like you, but whether or not God is honored in what you're doing. So how is God put on display? Is God made much of? He is the one who will judge and he does it justly. While your employers will maybe unjust. But at the end of the day, it is he, our Father in heaven, who will judge and he will judge us well. God will judge well. For Christ bore our sins on his, in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so we have to remember to rely on him for everything. And remember he sacrificed for us. He died for us. He took our sins upon him. He paid the wrath that was due us. For us and for our salvation. That we may be, as Paul says in Corinthians, ministers of reconciliation. To proclaim the good news that others may hear and know and come and see. And so one aspect of work is that we get to show that by our lives, by our interactions with those around us. We get to be a light. For he has taken the due penalty of sin away from us to live that life. And so that is our end. We are to be models of him. We are to walk out the faith. We are to follow the way, the path, Christ Jesus himself. He is our good shepherd, as the text says. He is the one who has led us. He has brought us back. He is the one that will care for us. He is the one that watches over our souls. We are but called to live the faith well as we go. So as you work, as you labor well in your homes, may you labor well for the gospel. May you be lights in your churches. May you be lights in your family. And may you be lights wherever God has placed you in the hours in between so that you can shine that truth in good and in bad that Christ may be honored and glorified. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word, to be instructed in your truth, Lord. May you continue to grow us. Lord, may all that we heard today continue to fill us with joy in the knowledge of who you are. May we be reminded of your son day by day as we live out the faith. Lord, may your spirit continue to enliven us to seek you in your word, to know you more dearly in fellowship of saints as we call one another to holiness and to grace and to forgiveness. Father God, may you continue to bless the church in Northern Ireland, those laboring well for the gospel. Lord, may they go forth into this rich harvest and reap bountifully, for we know that you have called and you have sent. Lord, may you reap a harvest in this country for your glory, for the fame of your Son, through the working of your Spirit, that your glory may shine from sea to sea, that all of Ireland may know 
truly and deeply your son. Not in word, but in spirit and in truth that changes and endures. Father, may you bless us and keep us through the power of your spirit alone. In the name of your son. Amen.